0: Everybody and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur RX, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody! Welcome to another episode of Entrepreneurs RX. Today, I'm excited to have John Cordier with me, who I met in a bowling alley. Believe it or not, I had him bowled in 30 plus years and met him there at a uh, VC conference. Uh, John is the CEO and founder of Epistemics. Which is hard to believe, but really got me interested while sitting there watching, you know, watch other people bowling and me scoring like a 76. So uh, it was that interesting that I remembered it from there. So, John, welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks, John. Really glad to be on.
0: Thanks. Now, did you end up bowling that night or were you just meandering?
1: Uh, yeah, I did end up bowling. I, I think that the top score I got was maybe like an 89. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you.
0: It was funny. I, you know, I remember bowling as a kid. Like I, I'd always at least get over a hundred. Like I think the highest I got, I think it was about a, a seventy-six. I mean, I just totally sucked.
1: Yeah. The uh, let's say that the slope of the lanes were, you know, if, if you weren't on, you're you're definitely hitting a lot of gutter balls. And uh, I think that was, that was the same not just for us, but for a few others. Um,
0: I'm sure. I'm sure there's a metaphor in there for uh, entrepreneurism and startups.
1: They're. Probably. I mean, if it was seventy-nine percent of three hundred, if that was the the likelihood of success of the, the people in that group, we'd be, you know, Midas list type folks if that was the case.
0: Oh my god, yeah, I'd be I'd be banking on unicorns the whole time. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Classic. All right. So Johnny, you have a really interesting background. And what struck me about you was I think I told you what what, what you I'm not sure you pitched it to me, but what you told me about. Was something I had an interest in before, and it's cool that you're doing it. And then some give everybody a little bit of your background because it's kind of unique, and then we'll go into epistemics and how you are, where you are.
1: Sure. So, my background growing up, I lived in 13 places before I was 18, military family, you know, bounced all over the place. And through that, I kind of got a, a lens into all different types of culture, all different types of people, and understanding the social dynamics around health it was that I eventually realized that that's how I viewed the world. So um went to college at the University of Pittsburgh, initially started off in neuroscience, was doing philosophy and history of medicine certificate and got exposed to the sociology of medicine. And that kind of got me hooked into understanding the social context of how health emerges isn't just like a given thing for anybody. So I um, added on another degree in sociology. Um, and after trying out a couple of other things, whether it was you know, to see if I want to do education policy to and do a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. Um, i actually landed back in public health, which when people asked me how'd you end up in public health, I said, well, between neuroscience and sociology, public health I think is squarely in the middle. You know, I get to pull in all different things that I'm intellectually curious into the work that we're doing today. So
0: but how about the entrepreneurial path? When did when did that bug get you?
1: Yeah. Uh, I started my first business when I was 14. I actually was, I saw a lot of houses in the neighborhood that were up for sale and their grasses weren't cut and so i said well i'm gonna to go to howard hannah and say well i bet you i can help you sell your houses quicker if the lawns looked okay so i ended up through middle school and high school running a lawn business with me and all my friends mowing lawns for people that moved out but the the serious side of entrepreneurship you know i never thought i would you know end up being a, a ceo or founder of a startup company but when it when it hit me it hit me i was 26 years old, as a graduate student in the School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh, working with the dean on developing the software platform. And what we realized, and we were nudged by one of the people on the board of advisors who runs a 35 hospital health system, he said, guys, look, the software is great, but you know, you're not going to be able to have an impact and software's not going to be able to have an impact after the 10 years you guys have been working on it, unless you get it commercialized. And it was really that moment of understanding the translation of the deep tech and the deep science that we were working on and the way to have it make an impact was connecting it to a market need. And you know, it was really that that first summer I started going through the different innovation center opportunities, uh, working with the Entrepreneur Institute at the University of Pittsburgh, um, got involved with the Schwartz Center at Carnegie Mellon University, and really just started gathering up all, all the tools that I felt could be helpful in eventually getting this, this company launched. So uh, yeah, I was a graduate student that was crazy enough to take on a commercialization project. And here we are five years later.
0: Was this your grad project? Is that how it started? Or did you see a need and say, OK, I'm going to poke a hole in that?
1: Yeah, it, it was even bigger than that. So the need was first identified in the early 2000s. So my two co-founders, Don Burke, who was dean of the School of Public Health, and John Greffenstet, who was leading the Public Health Dynamics Lab. Don had led infectious disease research for the military for twenty three years. and then prior to and then after that, he led infectious disease research at Hopkins. And it was when he was at Hopkins he realized that the world of computational modeling and mathematics for decision support and public health, there really wasn't an overlap. And the the big challenge was if it's an emergent disease, an emergent epidemic, anything that's changing socially from a behavioral point in a population, there not there aren't the tools to enable the medical community to understand, well, how do we respond? How do we react to this? And Don's whole kind of the big gap that he saw was we really need prospective tools that enable the clinical side and the policy side to be able to come together. And he formed a group that's called MIDAS, which stands for the Modeling Infectious Disease Agent Study. And in founding MIDAS, he basically set up a network of infectious disease modelers and researchers globally that we were the coordinating center at the University of Pittsburgh. And what a lot of these groups did is they started developing novel models. But instead of just going after a disease or a specific model, we said we were going to build a platform that enable any infectious disease researcher or any public health researcher to build models to test interventions to actually lead to improving
0: outcomes. So the example you gave me while, while bowling was really, really Insightful. Tell people that example because I thought it was really cool.
1: So, what we ended up doing, uh, we have a representation of every single person in the entire United States, um, every school, every workplace, every household. So, when people think of the game Sim City from like the 80s and 90s, we really have a realistic Sim City of the entire United States. And the example here was how do you understand how to mitigate or prevent the spread of an infectious disease once it's already started? And so we began running models to test how do you intervene upstream to prevent the further emergence of covid part of that we're actually running simulations um, during the h1n1 epidemic we were embedded within the white house when to close schools when to close workplaces how does a workplace understand what policies they need to put in place to ensure the protection of their workforce and we ultimately ended up getting a lot of traction and helped the global events industry return over the last couple of years. So from the Consumer Electronics Show to Hims to Health coming up this upcoming week, we've been able to run you an know, entire suite of models that are actually 240 different scenarios or combinations of interventions. And then through that, it gets distilled down into here's the best case, here's the worst case. You clearly want the best case. Let's look at those policies to put in place so you can gather people together safely.
0: So you gave an example, I'm I'm not going to think of it, but you gave an example of, look, if you do X and X was relatively small, you're going to prevent, here's a downstream effect of it over the next few years. Do you remember what that example was?
1: So the example is probably something to the effect of uh, more of the behavioral modeling that we've been looking at. So the behavioral modeling, similar to the emergence of an infectious disease, we've been able to look at the emergence of things like the opioid epidemic or the emergence of things like improving cardiovascular disease in a population over time. So from the behavioral modeling side, we were probably looking at on the infectious disease side is how do you, nudging people from a behavioral uh, behavioral standpoint, whether it might be signing up for a screening, signing up for you know, doing a, a regular test for COVID, flu, RSV, whatever it might be, looking at those early interventions that can be put in place could have a disproportionate effect on the total size of what the epidemic could be and one of the the things that we've been able to do in advance of that is looking at well who who actually cares about you know more or less disease happening in, a, in an entire population yes there's the insurers yes there's the healthcare providers there's also the manufacturers and those that are producing their um, therapies drugs whatever it might be so one of the things that we ended up doing was not only doing disease forecasting But let's say you're walgreens and what walgreens is trying to understand is well how many COVID vaccines are we going to sell out of our stores what do we need to be stocked with and so there's both the disease forecast then there's the behavior of i'm sick what am i going to do i'm going to stay home i'm going to go with one therapy or another am i going to get vaccinated and we can start testing what interventions or what marketing strategies can be used to nudge people and move people into the direction that can lead to more preventative care and in the walgreens case Not only the prevention side is something that's good for them, but also how do you right size your inventory across thousands of stores?
0: Right. I mean, it's a little bit like the butterfly effect. I mean, it's just you'd make this small incremental change that the outcome of which translated across the population could be absolutely huge.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing that our, our approach enables people to look at is the emergence of these broader population outcomes. And it really starts with understanding how a small change in behavior can lead to a disproportionate outcome. Because when you consider how connected people are, you're not really looking at a linear step. right? Um, and so, awesome. exactly. So ev- everything can be looked at as this compounding impact and you know, health is such a complicated thing. But how do the emergence of health, you know, people talk about the 80% outside of the health system. But well, within that 80%, sure, you have education, you have the social conditions around somebody. How can you look at something like housing? and If you are able to move people into housing, what is the, the broadening effect that can have on somebody's health and opportunity? So it's, it, you know our software is able to look at how these small changes in one person's behavior, if you're able to replicate that across an entire population, how that leads to really different outcomes.
0: Did you run models as related to COVID with, okay, if we had mask band-aids right out of the gate, if we closed schools right out of the gate, did you look at those models and say what could have been versus what was?
1: Yeah. So those 240 different scenarios, those all include what could have been if we did different policies with schools, what could have been if governments like at the state or city level intervened in different ways. And so what you're able to do with this type of software is generate all of these data sets to test counterfactuals. So here's, here's what actually happened. But what would happen if we had open schools earlier, closed schools earlier, had more people go into the workforce from working from home quicker? All of those things can be tested with this type of software to say, well, the next time around, here's what we could do differently. But better than that, to say, if we understand what's coming or what could be coming, how can we know what plan of action we need to put in place before it happens? And and that's really like the scenario planning exercise that this type of like tool and software can be applied into the policy and planning, strategic scenario planning type market opportunities.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think I mentioned that I met with a friend of mine who was a PhD from Hopkins in epidemiology, who did disease modeling at ASU and had this and had this whole theater, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way to say it, on disease modeling. And then, you know, I kind of pitched this idea to her. And I said, wouldn't it be cool because people could buy insurance a- against the catastrophic loss that would come from this insurance. I mean, it just, you know, well, you've already, you're doing it. So you totally get it. It was just, it it had to be frustrating. I'm change course a little bit there. Knowing what, you know, I would think it had to be frustrating sitting here watching a number of deaths check off every day and saying, you know, we knew this was coming, and we could have done a much better job mitigating these deaths. Was that hard to stomach every night, knowing what you know? Because you kind of have the, you know, you're kind of like the Wizard of Oz in some respects. You're you're looking behind the curtain.
1: Yeah, it was frustrating, and also for everyone on our team who were we were running simulations every day and understanding here's the number of deaths, hospitalizations, those that are going to be in an ICU, those cases, and and recognizing that. When we're running these simulations because we're representing each person in the entire population that these are actual people and it kind of humanizes the data and so yeah it was, it was definitely frustrating and one of the challenges that we had earlier on was how do you communicate that that's the type of le- that's the level of analysis that's now possible compared to just taking a spreadsheet model and just saying oh well we think it's going to be this sort of trajectory and curve and you know we you know my co-founder don he was given um the spreadsheet out of the white house Earliest October of 2019, of, hey, this you know this epidemic we think it's coming, here's what we think it's going to look like, and it was really eight cells in an Excel spreadsheet, and we're like, okay, this is clearly not the right way that we need to be making decisions, specifically for the entire country, and so um, we got to work pretty early on developing models, and Neil Ferguson was somebody out of Imperial College of London, part of the Midas Group, that he kind of got the word out on the UK side. And of course everybody'll say well the models at the beginning of the the pandemic are totally wrong. Well you hope they're wrong because you hope the behavior changes because of it. And and this is something that you know we we struggled with early on when we were going from you know there's the national level from decision making earlier in the pandemic to the state level to the local level and it seemed like at each one of those the buck was getting passed on to make more local 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 decisions. But those individuals like they're not all equipped with epidemiologists on staff let alone understanding what The novel advances in the field are so translating the policy and the political decision-making with the scientific decision-making is something that we've gotten much better at over the last couple of years to the point that business decision makers are able to trust the science because they can see themselves within the data so going beyond just situational awareness of here's what's happened here's what is to be able to ask the questions well what if we do this next or what if we test a different strategy And that enables them to think about creating a different future, creating a different possibility for their workforce, for the health of their population, if they're a health plan, for planning resources, if they're on the provider side or providing goods and services. So that's sort of the um, evolution that we came to over the last couple of years. But to get to the point of the question, yeah, it was definitely frustrating. And then overnight, everybody became an armchair epidemiologist. So that's, that's a separate thing. But... Yeah, we've we've overcome some of that.
0: Yeah, they became armchair sure, a lot of things. I I stopped asking people in the emergency department if they were vaccinated. I because it was like I, I almost don't want to know because half the time I just shake my head and be like, Well, that's why you're here and I'm gonna put you on a ventilator. And mm-hmm. um and they still didn't seem to buy into it. When did epistemic start?
1: So we incorporated in 2018. We licensed the, the end of 2018, we licensed the software out of the university in 2019.
0: Wow. So you you literally had the ultimate, and it probably wasn't an MVP by that point, but you literally had the ultimate product market fit with COVID. I mean, in some respects, the timing was either great or like, oh shit, depending upon what your perspective was at that moment.
1: Yeah. And so this is really all the way back to when Don in the early 2000s, saw like there's a need for this type of tool. And so the NIH funded us, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson, DARPA, all were aware that this platform existed. And then the challenge was, how do we get it into the hands of the decision makers? And so our first customer ended up being a consulting group called Resultant. So they were hired by the state of Indiana to run all of the modeling and simulations to help the state with their policy and plans uh, going forward. So I think April 2020 was our first customer and then they started running models and simulations. And then from there, you know, we had the election in 2020. So they're like, well, what happens if we do live, like people are going to show up and vote? We don't have vaccines out, but if people are all standing in line and like gathering inside, is that going to cause some, like additional spikes? So we're even able to model down to the level of like, you're bringing 200 people together at each of these voting places. So they're able to do all sorts of different analyses with the tool, all in the context of COVID, but really in the context of, how are our behaviors and how are our policies impacting the outcome that we're going to see?
0: I mean it'd be very frustrating to run the model, have the data, here's the support for it, and then have it ignored because I'm pretty sure your data was ignored by a few folks.
1: Yeah, um, a few folks, and you know, even to the point where in 2021, uh, right before the Omicron wave took up. So we we modeled that. Um, the CDC, there, they've been using the the ensemble forecasting group. And the challenge with a lot of what those different techniques are doing, they're all very statistical based, which like there's a time and a place for that. But when behaviors are changing so much, if you're not including the behaviors of people and decision makers, you're you're really missing a lot of what's likely to happen. So, you know, early on it's like, oh, like there's gonna be another wave. None of those models had it. So like there there's a bit of frustration there, but I think this is a good point of overlap with where there's actually an opportunity. So somebody who I met with recently, He's saying well you kind of fit into this synthetic data opportunity and his take in of synthetic data and healthcare is that it's controversial some people are all for it some people are like absolutely not and he goes whenever there's that sort of conflict he goes there's usually something within it so my example to draw on from there is we actually worked with drake university their university president and their executive team
0: in Wait, what, what university
1: drake university drake in the in Iowa. Drake in Des Moines, Iowa.
0: My alma mater, I was on the board. Go, Drake. All right, plug. Yeah, so, oh, so we worked wow. with
1: Drake. And what the team at Drake was trying to understand is, well, now that vaccines are available, this is twenty fall going into fall 2021. And what their question was, was, well, only about 45% of our students are reporting that they're vaccinated. We understand that we, we want to try to get to 70% to reach some level of protection across the campus. And then if we're bringing all these people back into Des Moines, what impact is that going to have on the city? And so we ran through a number of scenarios with them the earliest June and July before students were coming back on campus. And if you think of this the seasonal pattern of COVID flu, any respiratory disease in the US, that's the down season. And so or, you know, you're at the trough of the, the wave. And what the the folks at Drake said was like, well, oh, well, like, you know, do we even need this data? We don't know. Like, come on, we're not seeing any cases. It's not going to come back. And we said, look, here's the scenario. We're not just gonna give you the data that says everybody can come back on campuses and it's gonna all be okay. So they were upset for a little bit, but then what they actually used the data for was as a benchmarking tool. So when students did come back on campus, they're like, oh, well, here's what Epistemic said would happen in September. Oh crap, that's happening. All right, we know what policies to put in place now. And then they used us as a benchmark to say, all right, masking, social distancing, what are we doing across campus? What's going on within the city of Des Moines? And they they had an entire decision support tool to then say, all right, we know what strategy to put into place: September, October, November, December. Did that for the entire semester, and they, you know, all they were trying to do is stay below what we had projected. And there was sort of the the resistance to taking in data, but then when people are able to see, oh wow, this is actually being reflected, that had a really powerful impact. And um, you know, that, that's one of our best case studies um, that we talk to other people about.
0: Wow, I'm impressed. That's very. I mean, Drake's a small, five thousand liberal arts school in Des Moines. I'm I, I'm impressed that they did that. That's very cool. I'm I'm proud. Proud of it on the board. The um, and that's such as can. It's such a confined campus too. It must have been a really cool model because it it, it truly is a relatively enclosed campus.
1: Yeah, and then you, know, you think of where the professors are at, they're interacting with the students, or then going back to their homes, houses, and like what impact does that have on the city? Right. So yeah, it, it, was a, it was a really good model to see health, which is in this case, we're looking at the emergence of COVID cases, how that's really connected to the behaviors of what policy decision makers at the university were doing, and how they could see how their decisions impacted students, professors, and then those around them. So it's, it enables you to think about some of these social determinants of health or behavioral health modifications in a different way.
0: Now, so switching from the science to the business, how have you been able to monetize this? I mean, I, I totally get the value, but and, I'm, mm-hmm. and other people do, obviously, but how do you monetize it?
1: So we've gone through plenty of iterations on this. So at the beginning, it was, here's a licensing fee, and here's consulting services on top of it. We then said, well, by having the consulting fees be so much upfront, you know, it's preventing people from interacting more with us. They're not getting as much out of the tool because we're you know, not able to help train or see how they're using it. So we, we dropped some of the professional services fees. And then we ebbed and flow between licenses and professional services. We then went to what we did with the events industry. We'd say, oh, we'll develop a full end-to-end solution for a narrow set of decisions that have to be made. We were able to get that product going. Um, But what we've landed on to get to scale and really we see the power of this platform once it's in the hands of other individuals who are able to build the models themselves, who are able to address questions that they're the subject matter experts in, they can build their own simulations. In that movement, we actually had a licensing fee, a subscription to the synthetic population that we have, and a pay-as-you-go compute usage model. And what we found is that there's friction between the user and the buyer. And so what we ended up doing is saying, we're going to drop the licensing fee. We're going to provide the synthetic data as a data product of our synthetic population of every person in the US, everything geospatially located. And so people pay for the data product, and then they pay us, they go, so that a CFO isn't committing upfront to, well, how much computer are we actually going to use? Or, well, we're signing up for $50,000 here, but you know, what if we only use 25 of that? Like, does it get renewed? Like, So to make it simple for the user and the economic buyer, we move to, you pay for the data, and as you run your simulations, you pay as you go. And and that has enabled us to get into, it's helped us generate more traction that way. Then our our long-term goal is in 10 years, we're at 10,000 users globally building, running their own simulations. There's synthetic populations, not only for the US, We currently have some for Canada, for a couple cities in Europe, but globally to be representing populations to understand behavioral dynamics, understanding the emergence of different disease and how these different systems are all connected.
0: Does the synthetic population change in real time as a result of what's already occurred? So this might be a bad example, but I'll, I'll try to wing it. So of all the people that have COVID, X percentage of them now have chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, does a model take into that account so five years from now, 10 years from now, the, the risk of the rate of heart transplants and lung transplants are, are going to go up?
1: All, all of that is possible. So when, you, when we run the, the models for COVID, you're able to see by age, race, sex, household income with comorbid factors, what is the impact in that entire population? And then you can say, all right, here's the actual level of immunity. Here's the actual comorbidities that we're seeing going forward. And then you're able to take that and say if you can make the connection between what's happened with covid to any of the the heart transplant heart issues cardiovascular disease issues whatever it might be going forward you can start from here's who we know has covid long covid whatever it might be and then build on comorbidities from there so there's companies like md clone syntegra and a couple of others that are really looking at patient-specific data and creating representative data sets just from that. What they're doing is mimicking a data set. They're not looking at how behaviors are changing and what impact that might have. What we can do is overlay all of that information onto our synthetic population and begin projecting that forward and then include the behavioral interventions that might say, well, if somebody has this comorbidity going forward, if we can intervene this way, we might be able to prevent that longer term condition from happening in the future. So all of those things can kind of bring what they might say precision medicine to the table through synthetic data. We really look at this from a precision public health standpoint.
0: I was gonna say it's precision data, it's precision medicine to the masses. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, That's super cool. Man, if I was a hedge fund, I would grab this like none other because imagine what you could predict if back in January or even better back in October of 2019, you said, you know, I'm gonna short the airlines.
1: Yeah, uh, honestly, I, I hope some of them are listening right now, and uh,
0: we'd be glad to engage. So, yeah, that's. In fact, I want to buy it. What would you tell? I mean, you, you kind of came up through an interesting path, and you literally had a baptism by fire. What would you tell aspiring entrepreneurs? What have you learned through all this?
1: Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is get into the market as soon as you can because. You're not going to know unless you're working with customers what's working, what isn't working. Um, you can spin up all sorts of things within your team internally until you're getting external feedback. You, you're really not validating much of anything. So, even if you think it's a little early, there are going to be people who want to champion this sort of you know, whatever your your project is. Get in front of people as early as possible. And the next most important thing is making sure you have the right people on the team. And the best advisors I've had have been people that have helped me look ahead and make connections to people that help them see around the corner. So, um, from my position, I had no idea, you know, how to even start a company, what what any of that looked like you know, six years ago. Those first mentors at the Innovation Institute at the University of Pittsburgh—they were my early mentors. They helped me find the next tier, and the next tier, and the next tier, and when you find people who've gone through it before they really just want to help because they know how how difficult it is and the other thing is just being very open and honest about like what the challenges are because you know i experienced this with my own team if challenges aren't surfaced if people hold back you can't really lean in and help out as much and i found that to be frustrating with my team and then i looked at my own behaviors and actions and saying well if i'm not doing this with my partners my investors that's just something that you know, the earlier you can overcome, you know, oh, it's not it's not good enough yet. Or, oh, I, I want to hide this thing. Yet. It's don't avoid that. Just got to be open about where, where things are at and seek feedback early.
0: Well, um, it's interesting. I mean, your minimum viable product was not minimal at all. I mean, it was it sounds like full scale. How much did you iterate once it was already once it was already up? Or was it relatively what you had was was sophisticated enough to to serve the needs? So um,
1: April 2020, our first customer, that's pretty much what we had licensed out, You know, little improvements here and there, but pretty much the same product that we had licensed out of the university. They were able to take it out of the box, make use of it right away. But the challenge was the level of sophistication that that user had to have was pretty high. And so when we're ta- we use the phrase, and I, I really like it, like precision public health to the masses. In order for that to happen, we had to do a couple of things over the last few years. The first was make sure that our platform delivery method was scalable. So core software works, but if it's on-prem installations all the time, as we're updating and making improvements, we'd have to go back and do that at every location. So how do we get to a more scalable model that as we improve, everybody else can get the same sort of tools? So making the migration from high-performance computing centers to running everything in the cloud with AWS that was one thing. The next was how do we enable people to visualize and better interact with with the data? And so, you know, we used an off the shelf tool called Jupyter Lab and we built everything so that people can build, visualize, send off models all from one interface. And so what that did is it enabled the user experience to improve and now we can start, you know, we're training non data scientists on how to use the software. So there's people in public health, people even in marketing, who are saying, oh, well, if I can just have these parts of a model, I can put it on my population, run a simulation, and understand what's going on. So the out-of-the-box nature of where things were in 2020 compared to now, night and day, and that's that's been a really, that is what will lead to the quick kind of flywheel effect of building out more of a platform where we have the users and then those who are benefiting from it and over time, the same way that there's marketplaces for all different types of data exchanges. But at the end of the day, like you can look at Excel, it's probably the best example of this. There's people that build entire business models off of Excel. They sell their their models, plug and play, whatever you want. When you move into more of the data science machine learning side, it might be a little more sophisticated, but the core principle of the business model is the same. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that academic users, researchers, they can play with the entire sandbox Contribute their models, and then people on the market side can come in and say, Oh, I want to license this one. I want to lease this one for this amount of time. And we're creating both a model marketplace and the synthetic population marketplace as extensions of what we already have.
0: Did you get it, it at your level? And people probably didn't even know you existed, but did you get any backlash from the naysayers? And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I'd hear people say they they look at these predictions and they say, Oh, that's crap. That's a conspiracy. That's you know, I just I just had a guy recently who's a physician, embarrassingly enough, said, "Oh, you know, I read Robert F. Kennedy's book, and you know, he says blah 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 blah, which is this is all a big hoax." And did you get that at at the data scientist level, or is that were you guys immune to that because you were really the wizard? You know, you were the wizard of Oz. You that you were behind the curtain still.
1: So, so, I think there's like almost like a religious war on the data yes. science side between stochastic modeling and just like statistical modeling and so yeah there, there's a bit of that that we came up against but then when we we're actually getting what we had in front of a decision maker that had to make use of the data to inform a policy or take action they're like well i at least have been able to think about the problem differently it isn't just here's my the course. statistical model and this this is the data and i just have to react to it it's like i can see now how my decisions impact what the data shows, and and that sort of thinking, it, it totally opened up the minds of these people, mainly in the events industry, where they were able to see, okay, I make these decisions. Here's how it impacts my entire business. My entire business is gathering people together, and using like Disneyland as the example of, if you're trying to gather people together, safety is the number one thing. So Disney Disney writes all about safety for showing up at their parks. It's a prerequisite, and so people in the business or Direct consumer events industry, they realized if people don't feel that they can gather safely, we don't have a business. And using data to support that notion, you know, they, they feel more credible, they feel more empowered in their role. And you know, that's just one example. Our goal is to make sure you know that this software gets out and other people are able to use it, and that's the experience that other people can have.
0: It, but they also have some backup because they can say, here's my decision here's why I made that decision. Here's a, here's a science that supports it. I mean, that's gotta be a mm-hmm. huge insurance policy for them because now they're not winging it.
1: Yeah. Um, I think for far too long, people have just been winging, winging it. it. Yeah. The challenge that, you know, the second slide in my like investor presentation deck or third slide at this point, it's really decision-making at a strategic level for a long time has been let's look backwards and then let's just trust our gut. Yeah. And, and now it's like, well, if this is what your gut's telling you, you're really making different assumptions. Well, now you can test out those assumptions of what the future might look like. And it's not going to give you the exact answer, but it at least enables you to understand, I make these decisions. Here's how it impacts what outcomes I'm hoping to see. And early on, when we looked at uses of our software over time, we're coming out of a school of public health. So health has always been our our number one thing. Um, That's what, you know. I I guess another piece of advice going back to entrepreneurs, like make sure that you feel connected to the the work that you're doing because on days that it's tough, you need to 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 dig deep. So like the health component and the idea that we can improve the way public health is practiced, that's a, a big driver for me. But people will use our software to create a better future for health, create a better future from a finance standpoint, People certainly try to use the software to understand. Well, how do we get like this distribution of votes? All of those things are, are how the software is going to be used. But you know, it it gets back to our first intention was how do we enable people to make better decisions that are going to impact millions, you know, of people around the globe and this type of decision making and thinking. Really can make an impact.
0: Yeah, I mean, for no other reason, and there's a ton of them. But if for no other reason, it should allow you to sleep better at night because now I'm not relying on past experiences and intuition. It's like, okay, I've got all that, which is great, like you said. And now I'm Mm going to model it and see what it comes out. I, I think for a while I was talking to a politician, and I said I don't think people realize that some of these decisions they've made have left blood on their hands. And I know they didn't think that that way. They thought of their political ramification or what the populace thought was the best thing to do but at the end of the day a lot of their policies killed people
1: yeah i mean this is something that you know my co-founder don and i we we discuss it all the time there's that triad of health dollars votes and at the political level a lot of times those things aren't all congruent and you're going to say well this decision definitely shifts more towards the political decision rather than the health decision or the monetary decision and being able to understand the implications of that i think when that tool when you when you talk about you giving preci- like precision public health to the masses can really even go a step further and say it, we're enabling people to understand we're represented in the, in all of these data sets and the like political decision maker can't hide behind oh well, i didn't know it was going to happen that way and so now it's like well we have data to understand how we can help shape and form better futures for many other people, so. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, epistemics has no dog in the fight as far as the political or the votes go. It's like, hey, here's the data. Do with it what you want. But you're right. Now there's nothing to hide behind because now it's like, well, you know, that actually data was out there. You did have access to it. You chose not to look at it. You chose not to utilize it. Okay, but there's ramifications to that. Whether it's you, whether it's your your votes or someone's blood, there's ramifications to it.
1: Yeah, and the other side of that is you know, there's groups like RAND and MITRE and you know a whole bunch of other research firms that they're all using different tools. And the challenge there is it doesn't enable people to have the same type of conversation. And so one of the things that by having the synthetic population that represents every person, every school, every household, every workplace, it basically enables you to have the conversation around the same data set because everybody's there and everyone's represented. You can say, well, here's what happened in Atlanta let's look at what those policies if we drop that in on charlotte or drop that in on phoenix or drop it in on seattle what might happen and then you can test your assumptions and it enables people to have a conversation from the same source of data and in the same type of modeling language because a lot of the challenges from different modelers it's you know they might have a brilliant model written in c plus plus or python or something else A decision maker they're not going to go into the weeds at that level you know it I think the 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 gap in understanding from policy decision maker, they have an entirely different career trajectory than the data scientist totally. and like reaching the top of their, you know, the top of their field. But how do you bring those groups together? And so we talk about this concept of campfires. So bridging the qualitative and the quantitative to come together on the same platform can then inform a policy decision making much better than just saying, well, our data says this, our data says this. There's no way to compare, you know, across models a lot of times.
0: Right. Now we have a fixed data set. Well, it's not fixed at all because it evolves, but we have a fixed data set that we all can well, we all can uh, use. So that's, that's amazing. Well, John, congratulations. This has been really informative for me. And I, I know we have your pitch deck and we're taking a look at it, but it's uh, really impressive. And like I said, it, you know, while we were bowling, this is something I'd thought about years ago. And I thought this is so important. And someone a lot smarter than me had to do it. So thanks for doing it.
1: Yeah, really glad to be on. And somebody wanted me to give you a, a shout out, Eric Thrakill from uh, yes. Nashville, from Project Healthcare. So he and I met this past, I guess, a couple of days ago from a connection at the Population Health Colloquium in Philadelphia. And he said that you're a speaker uh, with one of his cohorts recently and yep. um, just wanted to say hi. So
0: Oh, thank you for that. Yeah I, yeah, I think I owe him an email or two. Well, John, this has been great. Folks, we'll have everything in the show notes, including the transcript of this and ways to get hold of John and follow what he's doing with epistemics and on LinkedIn. So, John, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thanks, John. Appreciate being on.
0: Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.